the reason we are having so much trouble in the Lord's Church today is because of a lack of teaching on basic fundamental subjects. And so tonight I want to talk to you about a, about a very basic fundamental lesson to impress upon your minds some things that took place to bring the church of the New Testament into existence. Last evening we talked about the New Testament church, but it didn't come into existence overnight. For years and years, preparation was made for the church of Jesus Christ, the church of the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, the second chapter, in verse 15, we read these words. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God who at sundered times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom was appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds. When we put these two verses together, this is what we learn. That God has, in different ages of the world, dealt with his people in different ways, fashions, and manners. And so when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Study, that you may be able to rightly divide the word of truth. The gospel plan of salvation, as it is revealed in the New Testament, is easily understood. In fact, there has never been any document written by any man or any group of men in any age of the world that's more easily understood than the gospel plan of salvation. That is what one must do in order to become a child of God and how one must live in order to go to heaven. Now, I am aware of the fact that there are many deep and profound things in the Bible. In fact, things so deep that the intellectual giants have never been able to fathom the depth thereof. But I repeat what one must do to become a child of God, how one must live in order to go to heaven, is easily understood. For instance, can you conceive in your wildest imagination of God's so loving man that he would send his son to this earth to suffer, bleed, and die that man might be saved and then turn around and give to man a plan that man cannot understand. That's not the God that's revealed in this Bible. The very fact that God has such a tremendous love for man would indicate that God in his infinite wisdom and infinite love would give to man a book that man can understand. But even though the gospel plan of salvation is easily understood, there are certain rules that one must obey in order to understand the simplicity of the gospel. For instance, one must recognize the Bible as being God's final authoritative revelation from God to man. Unless I look upon this book as God's final revelation to man, 
then what God says on any particular subject would not necessarily mean anything to me because there may be a later revelation that will reveal that these things are not true. So I must accept the Bible then as God's final, complete, authoritative revelation from God to man. Also, I must realize that no one verse in the Bible tells us everything about any one particular verse. Let me give you some examples. That here's an individual that is getting up in years. He realizes that he's never been religious. He realizes he ought to be a righteous person. He doesn't even own a Bible. So he goes to the store and purchases the Bible. Now question, why did he purchase the Bible? He wanted to know what to do to be saved. So he comes home and his Bible falls open in Acts 16, 31. And it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now question, what did he want to know? He wanted to know what to do to be saved. What does this verse say? It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Therefore he closes his Bible. He says it wasn't difficult. The only thing a person has to do to be saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because it plainly says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Another man goes to the store and buys, purchases a Bible because he doesn't own one. He wants to know what to do to be saved. He comes home and his Bible falls open at 1 Peter 3.21. It says, the lack figure run to baptism doth also now save us. So he closes his Bible. He says, I now know what one must do to be saved. Just to be baptized. That's the only thing he has to do because it says that baptism doth also now save us. If in the case of the first man, if the only thing he knows about faith is what he reads about in Acts 16.31, he would come to the conclusion that the only thing a person has to do to be saved is to believe but if he wanted to know the whole truth and all the truth on the subject of faith, he would read everything the Bible teaches on this subject, and then he would have a well-balanced scriptural knowledge of the word faith. And if the man who read 1 Peter 3.21 about baptism, if, if he reads this verse and closes the Bible, it's only logical that he would come to the conclusion that the only thing a man has to do to be saved is to be baptized. But if he wanted to know the whole truth on the subject of baptism, he would read everything the Bible teaches on the subject of baptism, and then he would have a biblical, well-balanced understanding of the word baptism. That's the reason that Paul said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. There's a terrible echo feeding back on me. Is it bothering you down there? Okay, that's fine. As long as it's not bothering you, that's good. That's the reason Paul said to study, that you may be able to write a divide or handle the right the truths of God. And so with these thoughts in mind, let us go now to our basic subject, the unfolding of the scheme of salvation. In other words, to show what took place to bring the church of Jesus Christ into existence. When we study the periods of time that man has lived upon this earth, they are divided into dispensations, known as the patriarchal age, and then the Jewish or mosaical dispensation, and then this age in which we live is commonly called the Christian age. Now let us notice some unique things about each dispensation that we may have a better understanding of the New Testament. And I'll be perfectly frank with you. 
I don't think an individual can understand the teaching of the New Testament without having some basic knowledge of these things revealed in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament or the New Testament revealed. And so when we study the Bible, we learn that in the New Testament, it's a revelation of the things that were taught in the Old Testament of things that would take place that you will observe as we go along in this lesson. The first period of time that man lived upon the earth, known as the patriarchal age, when we take this word patriarchy and break it down, this is what we have. The first part of the word patri means father. The latter part of that word archy means rule. So when we put the two words together, patriarchy, we have a form of government that's ruled and controlled by the fathers. Now this period of time lasted for about uh, 2,500 years until God gave a law to another people. But let me make clear at this point that when this law was given to these Jewish people, it was not given to everybody living at that time. What we call the Old Testament was given to a certain people for a certain purpose for a certain period of time. Now let us notice what takes place. We're told in Genesis that after man had lived upon this earth for about 1,600 years, that every thought and imagination of man's heart was evil continually. And God said, It repenteth me that I made man. Therefore I will destroy him from the face of the earth. Over a period of, of about 1,600 years, Man had become so corrupt in his living, so ungodly in his conduct, so evil in his thinking, that God said, It repenteth me that ever made him. Therefore, I'm going to destroy man from the face of the earth. In Genesis 6, chapter beginning of verse 6, God said, It repenteth me that I made man. Therefore, I will destroy him from the face of the earth. It was at this time that the great baptismal flood came, and every living being, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, was destroyed at that time. Except Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and those things that they took into the ark with them. Noah and his family remained in the ark as long as it rained. In fact, as long as the waters covered the earth. And finally, when the old ark landed, after the waters had succeeded, Noah and his wife had uh, the waters receded, Noah and his wife entered into a world that had been washed and made clean by the great baptismal flood. And then when Noah left the ark, God gave to Noah the same command that he'd given to Adam in the early morning of time, and that was to multiply and replenish the earth. At the time the flood came, even though it had been about 1,600 years since Adam, there had only lived 10 generations of people. Which is obvious then that people back there lived much longer than people live today. Those generations were Adam, Seth, Enos, Kaina, Mahalaleah, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Now notice what takes place. During the days of Noah, the flood came. And finally, Noah and his family entered into a world. And as I repeated, God gave to him the command that he had given to Adam in the early morning of time. Therefore... Every person living tonight is a descendant of Noah through one of those sons. And I wonder if you know just who you are and from whence you came. 
Several years ago, I was in a meeting with the college church in Abilene, Texas, and a very sweet lady came to me one night with a book almost as large as this book and says, I want to give you this book because my maiden name is Black. And then she said that this book tells where the blacks originated. And she said we originated in Ireland in 950 A.D. Well, I didn't want to make her feel bad because you're such a sweet lady, but I was thinking to myself, oh, no, the blacks go back beyond that. We go all the way back to Noah because all of us are descendants through Noah, one of those boys. If you remember, Noah had three sons. He named them Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Now, notice what takes place now about Jesus Christ. First, we'll take Japheth, the son of Noah. Japheth had uh, seven boys. He named them Goma, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. In Genesis, the 10th chapter, the first few verses, we're told that they settled the Isles of the Gentiles. Well, we know that the Isles of the Gentiles is that part of the world that we refer to as the continent of Europe that embraces such countries, France, England, Spain, Portugal, and Holland, and countries thereabout. And those Japhethites lived there for many, many years. In fact, many of them still live there. But a few years ago, some of those Japhethites set sail from old Plymouth Rock in England and landed at our Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts, and here we are in Oxford, Alabama tonight. I have an idea that with very, very rare exceptions, every person in this auditorium is a Japhethite. That is, you are a descendant of Noah through his son Japheth. But somebody says, how do we know that? We know who Japheth was. We know where his descendants went. We know from whence our forebears came. But notice, Jesus Christ did not come to the world through the seed of Japheth, so we will eliminate him. There was, Noah had another son. His name was Ham. He gave his boys rather common names for that age of the world. He called his sons Cush, Mizram, Phut, and Canaan. And they said that part of the world that's known to us as the continent of Africa. Well, somebody says, how do we know that? We know that by their meaning and translations of those words. For instance, Cush means, and it's translated, Ethiopia. Phut means, it's translated, Libya. Mizram means Egypt. Therefore, the people that originated in those parts of the world are the descendants of Noah through his son Ham, thus the Hamite people of the world. But notice again now, Jesus Christ did not come into the world through the seed of Ham. So Noah had only one other son. So it's obvious then that Jesus Christ had to come to the world through the seed of Shem. Shem also had some boys. He named them Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. And, uh, and they settled that part of the world that we refer to as the continent of Asia that embraces what we call the Holy Land and countries thereabout. For instance, for many, many years, north of the Persian Gulf, there was a country by the name of Elam. In the last few years, you've heard commentators refer to this name possibly hundreds of times. Today, they call it Iran, but that was once known by the name of Elam, one of Noah's sons. Now, since Jesus Christ came to the world through the seed of Shem, notice what takes place. There were Shem, Arphaxad, Selah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Serug, Nahor, Terah, and Abraham. Now, we've come about 2,000 years from Adam down to Abraham. Now, notice what takes place in the life of Abraham. In Genesis, the 12th chapter, God spoke to him and said, Abraham, I want you to get out of thy country, uh, from thy uh, kindred, from thy family, in the land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and, uh, and thou 
name shall be great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And notice now the next verse, verse 3. And in thy seed shall all people of the earth be blessed. I will bless those that bless thee, and I'll curse those that curse thee. For it's in your seed, through your seed, that the world will be blessed. Now, that was the promise that God made to Abraham that Jesus Christ was coming to the world through his seed. But someone may say, I can't get that from reading Genesis 12th chapter, that, that the promise of Jesus Christ coming to the world. Well, if you couldn't get it from reading Genesis 12th chapter, then turn to Galatians 3rd chapter and verse 16. Let us read that. And notice what it says. Now, to Abraham... And to his seed were the promises made. He saith not to seeds as a many, but as a one to thy seed, which is Christ. So Paul tells us then that the promise God made to Abraham was that Jesus Christ would come to the world through his seed. For I want you to remember this, for later on we're going to make a reference to this. Remember that God promised Abraham that Jesus Christ would come to the world through his seed. Now know some things that take place. In the meantime, God called upon Abraham to leave the land of his nativity. Abraham took with him his immediate family, his father, Tyre, his nephew, Lot. He traveled for 605 miles up to Euphrates Valley and came to old Haran. And here God renewed the promise to Abraham. And when Abraham was 90 years old, God had never fulfilled that promise. When Abraham was 95 years old, God had not fulfilled that promise. And I've often thought in reading this, how many of us would have said that 15 years ago, God told me he was going to do so and so and never did do it. 20 years ago, God made a promise to me and never did fulfill it. 24 years ago, God made a promise to me. He never did fulfill it. 25 years after God made the promise to Abraham, he fulfilled this promise. And I think that Abraham learned from that a great lesson. He learned to wait upon God. And that's what many of us need to learn to do in life, to wait upon God. And so when Abraham was 100 years old, his wife Sarah 90, he became the father of his first son by his legal wife Sarah. They named this boy Isaac. Isaac lived with his parents until he was 40 years old. At the age of 40, he met and married Rebecca. He and Rebecca lived together for 20 years before any children were born. And then Esau and Jacob were born to them, and they grew to manhood. We possibly refer to them today as old bachelors. And Esau married outside the family, and this displeased his parents very much. And then, uh, you remember, Jacob stole uh, Esau's birthright, and this put hatred between those brothers. And Jacob uh, was feared for his life, and so Jacob's mother sent him over to the land of Mesopotamia, where her brother Laban lived, who, of course, would have been Jacob's uncle. And for the first day that Jacob left home, he traveled 12 miles. And I read that and I think about how we travel today. Leave here today at noon, begin a meeting in California or in the state of Oregon or Washington tonight. But back then, 12 miles for the first day of his journey. And night overtook him. And having no modern motels we have today, he slept that night on the ground. He took a stone and used it for a pillow. And that night, Jacob saw a ladder that reached to heaven. Angels were ascending and descending on this ladder. And Jacob feared for his life. And he made a vow 
Many would have considered it a rash bow, no doubt, at that time in his life. But I've learned as a rule when man is in trouble, he often makes rash vows. Have you ever observed, talking to people in trouble, how they'll promise to do this, promise to do that? And I want you to listen to the vow that Jacob made. Remember, as far as we know, he didn't have a thing on God's earth at this time. But he said, if God will be with me and protect me, that I may safely reach my destination, I'll give to my God one-tenth of all I ever possess. Jacob became a very rich man. As far as the Bible reveals, he always kept that vow to God. And when Jacob reached his destination, the home of his uncle Laban, he met and fell desperately in love with Rachel, who of course was his first cousin. And he wanted Rachel to be his wife. In those days, you didn't necessarily ask the girl to marry you. You talked to the father about it. It was somewhat of a business deal, I suppose, like buying an automobile or a piece of land or something like that. And so he said, I'd, just, I'd like to have Rachel for my wife. And they dealt over this thing, I suppose, bargained over it, and came up with this proposition that Jacob said that you can have her if you work seven years for her. Well, Jacob said, evidence said that's a fair deal. And so he worked seven long years to have Rachel for his wife. But at the end of the seven years, Laban said to him, Son, I've been thinking about this thing. And you know, it's not the custom in this country for a younger girl to marry before her older sister. So I'm going to have to give you Leah instead. Now this convinced me that Jacob was a, a peaceful man. How would you like that kind of proposition? So he just took Leah instead of Rachel. But he went back to Laban and said, But I still want Rachel for my wife. Well, they dealt over this thing for a while, I suppose. And then Jacob said, you can have to work seven years longer. And so he said, I'll do it. She was given to him at that time, but Jacob worked 14 years to have Rachel for his wife. Well, somebody says that's a mighty high price to pay for a wife, 14 years of hard labor. Well, I suppose if you considered the age in which we live and inflation as it is today, they're just about as expensive today as they were then, as far as that's concerned. But anyway... There are still parts of the world where they practice this. When I was over in uh, Zambia preaching in gospel meetings, my interpreter was riding with me one night, and he was talking about his wife. In fact, he heard me preach the sermon the night before. And so he said that he uh, bought his wife. We would refer to it as that way. I said, what did you give for your wife? Well, he said, I gave a good milk cow. Well, there's another one sitting in the back seat. I asked, uh, well, what did you give for your wife? And he said, ten chickens. Well, I said, you didn't have to pay very much for yours, did you? Why, well, he said, it's a big price of everything I had. And so, of course, it was. That's a terrible sacrifice. man gave everything he had. Gave ten chickens for his wife. So in some parts where they still practice this to some degree. So Jacob became the father of twelve boys and one girl by these two wives and also two handmaids, Bilhah and Zephyr. And, of course, all of our young people are familiar with these names, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, notice what takes place in the history of the world. Ten of Jacob's boys that were out looking after his sheep, and he wanted to hear from them, so he sent Joseph to see about them. And all you are familiar with this story, that how these brothers saw Joseph coming, and they hated him. And the reason they hated him, Jacob was responsible for it, because he'd shown partiality among his children. And that's always a very, very dangerous thing for parents to do, is to show partiality among their children. And so they wanted, some of them wanted to kill Joseph, but while they were discussing this, they put him in a pit. They saw some people traveling through, going down the land of Egypt. And they said, we'll sell him as a slave. Back in those days, they had slavery. And so they sold their brother to these people as a slave. And so Joseph went down into the land of Egypt. He was just in a teenage boy at this time. 
And through the providence of God, you remember the story, how he was thrown in jail, accusations made against that were false. But through the providence of God, Joseph became governor of the land of Egypt. And in many, many years have gone by now, Joseph is a middle-aged man. And there was a famine up in the land of Canaan where his father lived. And when, ja when Jacob heard there was grain down in Egypt, he sent ten of his boys down there to buy grain. It's interesting to observe he did not send Benjamin. Possibly remember what happened to Joseph. He would not let the youngest child go. And when these ten brothers went down the land of Egypt to get grain, they were told that they would have to talk to the governor about this. And of course, they got an audience with the governor. And of course, the governor was Joseph, their brother. And when they walked in, no, they did not recognize Joseph because in their mind, Joseph died many, many years ago because sometimes a slave did not live over six months. Very few months, most slaves were dead. But Joseph recognized his brothers and he did not divulge to them who he was. He accused them of being spies. They said, no, we're not spies. We're all the son of one man. And then they told who they were. And they said, we're all the sons of one man. Ten of us are here. One of our brothers is home with our father. And they had to refer to Joseph. And they just simply said, one is not. But Joseph accused being spies and said, if you're not spies, you say you have a brother. You go back to the land of Canaan. Bring your brother with me to prove to me that you're not spies. They went back without the grain. They told their father they couldn't get grain without Benjamin. And Jacob reluctantly let him go. So Benjamin went with them. You remember the story? How they had to cut, put in Benjamin's sack, sent them on the journey, brought them back. And of course, Benjamin was the guilty one. Of course, he was innocent. Joseph had it put there. And it was on this occasion that Joseph said to them, that I am your brother. And it isn't difficult for me to understand why Joseph became the governor of the land of Egypt, man, with that beautiful attitude. He even said to them, Be not angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, because no doubt they thought every one of them would be killed. But be not angry with yourselves. He said, God sent me before you to preserve life. So he sent up the land of Canaan, brought all his people down the land of Egypt. They lived and died there, and the Bible says there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. Joseph had been dead many years at this time. These people prayed that God would deliver them, and God appeared unto Moses, who was 80 years old. And this is something else that's very interesting. Can you conceive of a group of elders anywhere calling a man 80 years old to do something like that? But when God wanted this great victory performed, he didn't call on an 18-year-old boy. He appeared to a man who was 80 years old. said, I want you to go down the land of Egypt and bring my people out of Egyptian bondage. Moses, 80 years old, went down the land of Egypt, went before Pharaoh, and through the mighty working powers of God, Moses brought those people out of the land of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and sometime thereafter came to the foot of Mount Sinai. Now we've come about 2,500 years. Now, I want you to notice what takes place. The very important things took place at Mount Sinai. It was here that they numbered and organized the children of Israel. It was here that they built the tabernacle. At the foot of Mount Sinai, they made the golden calf and sinned against God. And it was on this occasion that God called Moses upon Mount Sinai and gave to him the first written law that man ever received from God. For notice, during the patriarchal dispensation, there was no written word. For the first 2,500 years that man lived, God did not communicate with man in written words. For the first 2,500 years that man lived, there was no set day of worship. For the first 2,500 years that man lived, there the father served in the capacity of a priest. And during the first 2,500 years, men did not congregate as we've done tonight. It was an older system. But now notice what takes place. God called Moses upon Mount Sinai 
and gave to him what we call the Ten Commandment Law that's found in Exodus the 20th chapter that says that thou shalt remember that I am the Lord thy God that brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven images. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Now your Bible is divided into what is called the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now this part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament is composed of those Ten Commandments and the writings of Moses and the prophets. That is the Old Testament law. And which means if you and I had been living back there, we wouldn't have been under that Old Testament law any more then than we are now. We never were under the Old Testament law. The Hamites and the Japhethites never were under the Old Testament law. This was a certain law given to a certain people for a certain period of time. Well, somebody might ask, what law did these other people live under? Well, the same law they've been living under in the early morning of time. The giving of this law had nothing to do with the patriarchal dispensation because it just, God called these certain people out and gave to them this certain law and we'll study in just a few minutes why this was done. But notice some unique things now about this law. Under the notice, during the patriarchal dispensation, there was no written law. Now God's communicating with the Shemite people of the word through written laws. Notice, during the patriarchal, dis, patriarchal dispensation, there was no set day of worship. Now there is a set day of worship given to these people. During the first 2,500 years a man lived up on the earth, there every father was serving the capacity of a priest. Now after this Old Testament law is given, all the priests have come from the tribe of Levi. In Exodus 28 and 1, God said to Moses, Thou shalt take thy brother Aaron and his sons, and they shall minister me in the office of the priest. For the first 2,500 years that man lived, people did not congregate as we've done tonight. But when this law was given, now they begin to congregate as we've done this night. During the old patriarchal dispensation, it was the altar system. The day we worship God in the church. Now listen to me carefully. It was under this law, this Old Testament law, that Jesus Christ was born, lived, and died. Jesus Christ never did live under this New Testament law. He lived and died under the Old Testament law. That's the reason that Paul said in Colossians, the second chapter, beginning with verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, taking it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, having spoiled principalities and powers, making assure them openly, triumphing over them. And let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a new moon or the Sabbath day or holy days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. Paul says that this law was abolished and done away. I mentioned to you last night that where someone who calls himself a gospel preacher said that the, the Old Testament law in no sense has been abolished. Why, the apostle Paul said it was abolished. It was nailed to the cross. It was done away. But someone would possibly ask, why would God give a law and then blot that law out? I'm sure if you talk to many people about the Bible, that's what they ask. Why would God give a law and then blot it out? Well, in Galatians, the third chapter, beginning with verse 24, you listen to the Apostle Paul. He said, the law, now let's keep in mind what the law was. That's this part of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament. The Jews called it the scripture. Listen to it. The law was our schoolmaster 
to bring us to Jesus Christ. Notice that what? The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus Christ. And after, after that Jesus Christ had done that, it was been abolished. The law was to bring us to Christ. Why? That we might be justified by faith and not by the law. Paul said man cannot be justified by the law. Therefore, the law was to bring us to Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But someone possibly say, I still can't understand. Well, if we could understand this, this reading, observe this. The schoolmaster in those days was not the one who did the teaching. The schoolmaster was the one who would go to the home, pick this child up, and was responsible for the safety of that child until he reached the one who wants to teach or to instruct. Now notice what Paul said. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us from over here to, to this place here where Christ is. That we might be justified by faith because by the law we could not be justified. That's what the law was. It was to bring us to Jesus Christ. But someone says, Brother Black, I still can't. Why would God give a law and then blot that law out? Well, let me read it to you again. This time in Galatians 3rd chapter and verse 19. Now listen to it carefully. Wherefore then serveth the law? That's what they asked Paul. I haven't had every time Paul preached something like this, they'd ask him, if God gave to man a law and then blotted that law, wherefore then serveth the law? Why was the law given in the first place? In other words, why was the Old Testament law ever given? Why would God give this Old Testament law and then turn around and blot this Old Testament law out? Well, Paul says, number one, it was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And then he said in Galatians 3.19, Wherefore then serveth the law? That is, what was the purpose of the law? Now notice it. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgression. Till the seed should come. Who is that seed? In Galatians 3.19, for the promised word of Abraham and to his seed. He saith not to seeds as a many, but as a one to thy seed, which is Christ. Do you remember the early part of this lesson? I told you to remember that God made a promise to Abraham. Now notice, after God made this promise to Abraham, what takes place? The Hamites, the Shemites, the Japhethites are all into Mary. Therefore, how can God fulfill his promise to Abraham? How can it be done? God told Abraham the word would be blessed through his seed, but the identity of Abraham's seed is going to be destroyed through all the intermarriages. And listen to me carefully. God gave this Old Testament law primarily to protect that promise that he made to Abraham. And when Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, that promise that God made to Abraham had been fulfilled. God had protected that promise. And therefore, when Christ died on Calvary's cross, he blotted that law out because it served his purpose. It was never given to all the people living, but only the Shemite people of the world to protect the promise that God made to Abraham. And until some individual has some understanding of this, then I can see why he cannot understand the teachings of the Bible. All these things took place to bring the church of Jesus Christ into existence. Now then, in the conclusion, notice some unique things about this Christian age. Now notice, during the old patriarchal dispensation, there was no written word. During the Jewish economy, they had the Old Testament. In this Christian age, we have the New Covenant, or the New Testament. Notice, during the old patriarchal dispensation, there was no written word. During the Jewish economy, 
they had, as we as we said, the what we call the scriptures. Today we have the New Testament. During the old patriarchal dispensation, there was no set day of worship. During the old Jewish dispensation, they observed the Sabbath. But in this Christian age, we met upon the first day of the week, as we're taught to do in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, Revelation 1, 10, and Acts 20 and verse 7. Also notice again some of the unique things about each dispensation. During the old patriarchal dispensation, every father served in the capacity of a priest. During the old Jewish economy, all the priests came from the tribe of Levi. But in this Christian age, every Christian is a priest. In 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter said, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, that you should show forth the praises of him that called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the reason we don't go to some earthly priest and have him to pray for us. We are priests ourselves, and there's just one great high priest, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, during the old patriarchal dispensation, that these people offered the blood of animals. Also during the Jewish dispensation, they offered the blood of animals. But today, we don't offer the blood of animals. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. During the old Jewish dispensation, one became a member of the Jewish family by fleshly birth. One becomes a member of the family of God today by a spiritual birth. By first believing on Christ, Hebrews 11, 6, by repenting of his sins, Luke 13, 3, by confessing his faith in Christ, Matthew 10, 32, and by being baptized in the body of Christ. In Galatians 3.27, for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. Now, I'm sure these are some of the things that Paul had in mind when he said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that he not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So if you're here this night and you are a member of the church, I hope this will give you a better understanding of how the church came into existence and the things that took place to bring the church into existence. And if, you're, if you are not a member of the church, as we stated last night, all spiritual blessings are in this church. One becomes a new creature in this church. Christ gave his life for this church. And you become a member of this church by doing the things we've just mentioned and mentioned in the plan of salvation. Or if you're here, a member of the church, you've not been a faithful child of God. If you come repenting your sins, God will forgive you. I hope this lesson tonight will help you to be a better Christian, help you to understand more about the church of the New Testament because unless we begin to come back to the Bible and teach these basic fundamental lessons, the church is headed for the greatest apostasy that we've ever known. If you're subject to an invitation, we invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.